All right, please open to Proverbs 14. While you're turning there, we'll be focusing on verses 8 to 15 today, uh, but we'll kind of go through the, the rest of the chapter, and I'm not sure that I'll do the second part of the chapter, or third part of the chapter. As a reminder also, so I don't have a handout today, I want to remind you that there are seven major collections in the book. The first collection is the first nine chapters, and it focuses on childhood and youth, and it's the simplest part to interpret. And the second collection, which we're in the middle of, is chapters 10 to 22, verse 16. Those are the 375 Proverbs of Solomon, which remember, that's the number of his name. If you take the Hebrew numerical value of the name Solomon, you get 375. And so there's 375 Proverbs to meet his number. This section is focused on the young man, and the man is the adult, generally speaking. But the next section, collection three, which is a couple of chapters, that's the 30 sayings of the wise, that is also focused on the young man or adult, sort of moving into a more mature place. Collection four, most of chapter 24, is also focused on the adult. It's called the further sayings of the wise. These are internal uh, differentiations. These have headers, these headers to break out the sections. This is the internal construction of the book. And you get to collection five, and collection five, is the more, more Proverbs of Solomon from Hezekiah's men and focuses on fathers and leaders. Collection six is the 30, the chapter 30, the sayings of Agur, the son of Jacob. And it's also fathers and leaders. And the last section, the sayings of Lemuel, also focused on fathers and leaders and ends with the famous Proverbs 31 section focused on the kind of wife that helps you to rule well and gives the example of that. And so that is the kind of woman that women ought to want to be, and the kind of woman that men ought to want to marry is one that will help you to exercise dominion well. And so men should aspire to be what the office of elder is required to be, and women ought to aspire to be like the Proverbs 31 woman. So those are things that we saw in the big structure of the book. When we got to chapter 14, we looked at the first seven verses, and the first seven verses had a chiasm in it. And so we saw that uh, verse 4 was the centerpiece of that, and so we spent the time on that. So the first two verses were the first collection, and they matched up with the last two verses in terms of the themes. So let me remind you of that structure, because we're going to look at a second chiasm today in verses 8 through 15. And so what we saw last time was there was an, this idea that the first two verses of the chiasm showed that we are to... You should embrace a wise wife as a companion and fear God. And the last section was about avoiding mockers and fools. So those are sort of the two sides of the coin, right? And the companion you're going to have as a wife is going to be the companion you have uh, influencing your life the most. So it magnifies. Then the B section in the middle there went to foolish speech and wise speech. And verse 5 talked about how character controls speech. And we went to Matthew and talked about how there was this, the way that Jesus talked about that in terms of the tree and the fruit, right? So we saw the same lesson in Jesus' teaching in Matthew. And then in the middle, wealth is generated by initiative and industry in using available resources. So I want to read verses 1 to 7. that You remembered that outline. Let's look at that, and then we'll move into the new verses for the day. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. In the mouth of a fool 
is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Now, last time when talking about the idea that the ox is sort of this example of capital goods, of, of look, there's a maintaining work to to have things to help you to generate productivity, to generate wealth. Um, we talked about that power. And one thing I did not emphasize that I wanted to make sure I left with you is this. The temptation for not having productive relationships, the temptation for not doing things like starting businesses, the temptation for, for not deploying wealth is it's messy. Work is, is messy. When you do work, it creates problems. You go, I'm trying to solve problems by doing work. I don't want to generate new problems. Well, there are better kinds of problems, right? In business, right, you can have like the we don't have enough sales problems or you can have the we have too many sales problems. The too many sales problems are problems, but they're way better problems, way better problems. So the idea that when you are productive, it creates a mess that has to be cleaned up that is something that we, we have to not use the mess of productivity as an excuse. You go, I don't want to deal with people. I work with people. I have to deal with the problems of relationships with people. Yeah, that's true. But it's not good for man to be alone. And there's a way in which the church is supposed to work together. And dealing with churches, dealing with commitments in churches, messy, difficult. But it is better than not having it. And so, you know, using the difficulties that come out of productivity as an excuse to not be productive is dangerous. And it's encouraged by cowardice. Okay, so a messy trough doesn't seem all that scary, but what you see over and over again in other Proverbs is this general tendency to say, you know, the lazy man says there's a lion in the streets. Right? That's the kind of thing. that There's this there's an excuse, there's some sort of risk, there's... So excuse-making, fear, and mess-cleaning up are big excuses to avoid productivity. So I wanted to emphasize that. I don't think I emphasized it last time, um, but I think that's key for that center verse. And that's the emphasis verse of the chiasm. It's right there in the middle. you notice that with Psalms a lot of the time, too, by the way. Remember this. Most Psalms have their thesis as the middle verse. Okay? So chiasm 2. So we're continuing here. These two relate to each other, and I'm going to point out the relationship after we go through chiasm 2. Okay, so chiasm 2, I'm going to read the text, and then I want to kind of point out the, the structure of this chiasm since we haven't gone through it before. So, so see if you can find structure while you're reading through it. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Fool mocks its, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, 
but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. Okay, so if it's a chiasm, you know it's, it's got two points that match in the middle, and it goes out, and they're going to match. So when you look at verses 11 and 12, that's the middle here. And so that's the center of the chiasm. It says, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So if I had given you my handout, which I didn't, so I'm just mocking you now, right? The title that I put on it was The Way of Death. Okay, so we're pulling out from the middle here. So this is about the way of death. Fun chiasm. God has a plan for you. Now, the other chiasm, the middle of it, is about industry and how it, there's a mess with industry. Okay? So the other one's about I want to propose this is about walking by faith versus walking by sight. This is the, the comparison of the two chiasms. One is you see all the trouble of hard work. And when you're in the middle of it, before you get the harvest, especially, you feel that weight of the work and the messiness. Working through that, you have to remember... Much increase comes by the strength of an ox. That work, even though it's messy, brings much gain. Now, on the other side, if you walk in a way that is according to the natural man, it might seem right. It might seem very pragmatic. Its end is death. Its end is the way of death. Now, you'll notice at verse 8, you have the word way. Okay, There's this, this Hebrew word for road or way that's used over and over here in this. It's dera. Okay, so, that word is at the beginning in verse 8, and it's also in this little part of kind of the thesis, the way of death. And so, I think these two help to relate. And when you close this thing out, look at verse 15. It talks about the prudent man considers well his steps. So the theme in this chiasm has to do with the way you live, the way you walk in. And so the way you take is kind of like, here's the road. And the steps are the individual steps on it. And the middle part in terms of the way of death. Well, what, what is it saying here? Let's look at eight again, verse eight. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. It's to differentiate between the road and not the road. Do you ever go hiking at night? Terrible idea. If you do that, you'll notice one of the difficulties is not knowing where the road is. And so, unless you have a light, differentiating the trail from not trail is difficult. Without the law of God or the lamp unto our feet, that is the way we live. Things seem right, 
and you end up with a rattlesnake on your ankle. And that doesn't end well. So that's the three kind of touch points that give us the structure of this chiasm, the way the steps at the bottom and way in the middle. Okay, so now let's, let's read through it. Um, we read through it, I'm sorry. But now let's talk about the structure again. So let me, so the top is the shrewd and fool, they get contrasted, and the bottom is the gullible versus the shrewd. Okay, so the shrewd and fools versus the gullible and the shrewd. So you see shrewds at the end and the beginning. Prudent. So then you get in verse 9 and 14. Um, verse 9 says, fools mock at sin. That word sin there, the most common way that word is translated is trespass offering or sin offering. And so I think you can use it sometimes to talk about sin. You can use it sometimes to talk about guilt. It's most literal meaning. <laughs> the New King James says literally guilt. Well, more literally, it's actually trespass offering. And so trespass offerings, sure, they deal with guilt, they deal with sin, but fools mock at making amends for sin. Fools mock at conflict resolution. Fools mock at blamelessness. And so you look down at, at verse 14, and it says, the backslider at heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. And it's literally from above himself. Um, so satisfied from God. So the fool mocks at trespass offerings. The good man is satisfied from God. Now think about those things contrasted with each other. Trespass offerings is expensive. And if you mock at them, you might think, I'm saving. Look at the discount I got on life. No trespass offerings. So I should have way more to satisfy myself. Good man who goes through the cost of resolving conflict pays through the nose and then gets paid way more. And that's the way it works. That's the economy of God's order. So fools mock at trespass offerings, but among the upright, there is favor. Oh, well, when you work through it, verse 9, when you work through conflict, you gain the favor of men, and you also receive temporal blessings from God. Verse 14, the backslider in heart will be fulfilled with his own ways. Sorry, will be filled with his own ways. That sounds like satisfied. It's a pun. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. The backslider gets away from what's good, moves away from it. So what is he going to get? He's going to get things that are inferior. He's going to trade the better for the worse. He's going to be filled with having all sorts of subpar trade results, which means all sorts of self-deceit, curses. A good man will be satisfied from above himself. So C verses D and sorry, verses 10 and 13, verses 10 and 13. The heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. Verse 13, even in laughter, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. Isn't it beautiful how these connect, like how this chiasm really is just there? 
So the heart knows its own bitterness. And a stranger does not share its joy. The Bible has all sorts of ways that it teaches about how as we seek other people's good, we're actually seeking our own good. But it's also very, very clear. When you get wisdom, you are helping you. When you get wisdom, you are helping you. Wisdom makes it so that bitterness is our lighter and causes real joy. Now you're stuck with your own bitternesses. You bear those. You carry them. They can be healed by Christ. That doesn't mean you didn't have them. It doesn't mean you don't have them right now. The bitternesses you bear, you know, your heart knows it. God knows it, but God is not experiencing it. God's too good for that. God has no passions. God doesn't change. God doesn't suffer. Okay, people want to make much of the idea of Christ feeling their suffering right now. He doesn't. He doesn't feel your suffering right now. Now, he is in a glorified state. Christ is not suffering any longer. He's in a glorified state. He suffered. He suffered bad for you. He took the curse of God, died on the cross, was beat, crown of thorns, bled, or sorry, sweat blood. But he's done with that. God knows you're suffering, but he's not suffering. You suffer the bitternesses of your own heart. And a stranger does not share its joy. The Bible teaches egoism. What I mean by that is it teaches that you should pursue your own self-interest. I did not say egotism. Egotism is a foolish thinking that what's good for you by your own perspective is necessarily good. Just because you think it's in your interest doesn't mean it's in your interest. See, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We need the law of God to reveal our true self-interest to us. The law of God teaches us our true self-interest. And the motive here is, hey, listen, this is your real self-interest. Do what the law of God says. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. Now, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, which means that one of the ways as wise people that we benefit is that we start to see how what happens that's good for other people is good and we should be content with it. In fact, be joyful about it. But fools don't rejoice with those who rejoice. right? They just covet. When good things happen to other people, mad. Bad things that happen to other people, varies. Are you happy about that? Are you mad about it because they're your ally in some way and it's in, you know, ineffective for your own interests? So we learn to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice out of wisdom.
Now, we can try to distract ourselves. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, even in laughter, the heart may sorrow. Laughter cannot remove sorrow. It can sort of lighten it. It can distract from it. But there is a pain, right? And the process of seeking to deaden, the process of seeking to deaden does not work well even at the time, right? Which is why running to all excess of riot is an effort to find so many possible stimuli that you can avoid thinking about the internal pain, which lasts for a very limited time. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. Short-term pleasure in laughter, short-term pleasure in mirth, both during the laughter, you can be unhappy, and when it's over, the end of it can be sorrow, it can be grief. So the naive are prone to look at good times and say, good times, that's the good. And so you look for ways to be entertained, look for ways to be amused, look for what's fun, as opposed to wisdom. And the result is, the end of that can be grief. You can be unhappy. You can have sorrow even while you're laughing. We've all had that. You've all had, you have to be around other people. You have to make do. So you smile and smile. And all the while, you just feel like crying. And so that right there, the mask of trying to deal with people, and the mask of even trying to convince yourself that something's good, That's a real problem. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. The heart knows its own bitterness, and the stranger does not share its joy. This is supposed to build up for you the value of wisdom there that you see, knowing the right way, knowing the way, is very valuable. The center of this and we talked about going out, the shrewd and the fool, the gullible and the shrewds, going in, making amends for sin versus being repaid for sin. Okay, going in, the secrets of the heart and the secrets of the heart. Okay. And then go to the very middle, the destruction of the wicked versus the prosperity of the upright and the deceptive way of death. That's what's going on there. So I want to talk about the outside of it again. So look at, look at verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way but the folly of fools is deceit. In verse 15, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. So let's take all the things about the prudent and put them together. The wisdom of the prudent understands his way and considers well his steps. If you understand the way, if you can differentiate between the path and not the path, and then you consider where to put your feet on it, do you see how you would be secure in your traveling? So the law allows us to see the path, and then we seek to apply it step by step. And the way you get through a path, by taking one step after the other, would be the next good thing. And so you are required to take action at moments applying the law. So a thoughtful consideration of that. Now, when we think about the fool, let's consider the other side here. The folly of fools. What does it say there? 
is deceit, and he believes every word. But believing every word is is not considering carefully your steps, is not differentiating between the path and non-path. It's deceit because it's a self-deception, and you deceive others. So let's think about deceit a little bit more here. The wise man, the prudent man, is concerned to be prudent in his identifying the way and his steps on the road because he doesn't want to be deceived himself. And your example is an example. What you do says to other people, do like me, this is good. And so the way that you behave, other people follow along. And so being desirous to not deceive himself, the wise man is careful to differentiate the way and to consider his steps. And he's also desirous to not deceive others. The fool believes every word. He's tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He deceives himself, and as a result, he deceives others in his example. Now, you remember we talked about there's two main words for fool in the book of Proverbs. And one of them is somebody who's morally perverse because of dullness, and the other one is um, dull because of moral perversion. We talked about kind of the humor that those things play on each other. So when it says the folly of fools, okay, what it's saying is the dullness of moral persuasion of those who are morally perverse because of dullness. Sorry, the dullness of moral perversion of those who are morally perverse because of dullness. So the folly of fools is deceit. Their perversion makes them dull. They are dull in their perversion. Now, the idea of the simple, this is a word we've run into a lot as well. And it's petty, if that sounds familiar at all. It's the one who's not subtle, not discerning, not able to distinguish truth from error. This is sometimes translated as um, the naive, the gullible, the simple. The simple believes every word. That hardens into foolishness. Unless he hears the call of wisdom. And so discernment through the use of critical analysis, through seeking integrity. The gullible does not test what is said before applying it. But the prudent considers his steps. He understands his steps. He distinguishes good steps from bad steps. The goal of this text here in verses 8 and 15 is to encourage critical analysis by making the thoughtlessness of fools in naively accepting the appearance of things to look silly compared to the thoughtfulness of the prudent. So we move further in again. Okay. Verse 9, fools mock at sin, trespass offering, restitution, but among the upright there is favor. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. So the fool mocks at moral debts, mocks at making restitution for wrongs, mocks at 
at and give scorn to create strife. This this intentional scorn giving to create strife. It's a sort of amusing of self. They're filled with their own unsatisfying ways. Look, if you want to be full of the pain of strife, then give strife to other people. If you want to be satisfied and enjoy the favor of God and man, then seeking to make restitution, to make peace when you have wronged others is the way for that. We're told the upright get and give favor in creating peace. They're satisfied from above themselves. So there's a strong motive for that. Obviously, the goal there is to show the pain and suffering of not caring about peace versus the blessings of being a peacemaker. So verses 10 and 13. The heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. The heart feels its own suffering, its own bitterness, feels its own joy and its own sweetness. The heart can sorrow while laughing, can lose temporary mirth and pleasure to be replaced with grief and suffering. There's the changeableness of all that. Others do not feel your suffering, feel your joy, feel the sorrow behind your laugh or taste the grief after your mirth. Therefore, you should very carefully consider your way because you're the one that has to deal with the consequences of the way you walk. So we get into the middle of it again. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The house of the wicked, and you think about houses versus tents. House sounds more stable, a tent sounds less stable. Well, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, not stable. Acts according to its own imaginings toward death. A tent of the upright will flourish and acts according to the revealed doctrine toward life. If you do what seems right to you apart from divine revelation, you are marching off to death. You are creating an idol and inventing means to get it. The scriptures reveal the good, the knowledge of God, and they reveal the means to grow in it. The goal is to know God more. The law of God shows you how to gain the knowledge of God. Now, something interesting happens at the end of verse 15. Verse 15 serves as a bridge into the next section. So, verses 15 through 18. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. Verse 16, a wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. This section contrasts wisdom with actions. Okay, so we have the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. There's that relationship of wisdom or folly with actions, wise actions, prudent actions. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Okay, raging 
versus fear departs from evil, self-confident. A wise man fears. What is he fearing? You go, well, we've talked about the fear of God a lot. Maybe that. A wise man fears and departs from evil. A wise man fears evil. A wise man fears committing evil. We just saw how if you commit evil, you'll be filled with your ways. A wise man fears evil. He fears committing evil. He wants to be delivered from evil. And because he's fearful of evil, he departs from it and prays, lead us not into temptation. And then he tries to act in accordance with that, like we've been warned about, staying away from the strange woman, or walk by her ways, right? Wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. I'm not afraid of that. I'll be fine. Do what I want. A fool rages and is self-confident. The wise man fears, and he carefully considers his step and differentiates the path. The fool rages, does not differentiate, does what he thinks is right without consulting the law of God. He's self-confident, even for epistemology. I can figure it out. For ethics, I do what I want. Verse 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. The fool rages, right? Hey, do you know a lot of people who rage who are long-suffering? Or do they tend to be quick-tempered individuals? Oh, raging is associated with quick temper. I see. And that probably suggests not fearing evil, right? Because raging tends towards rash action, not careful consideration of steps. A man of wicked intentions is hated. Remember earlier on, we were told that the wise and the prudent find favor. A man of wicked intentions is hated. So the quick-tempered man acts foolishly. His steps are not wisely considered. And if you have wicked intentions, your goal, your destination, is bad. And so we all choose what we think is good, the question is, are we right? You always choose what you most want. You always most want what you think is most valuable. You think it's most valuable because you think that's worth getting. It's good. You're willing to trade other things for it. High valuation of that thing. The fool pursues the wrong end and applies the wrong means. It seems like there's a theme here about Meditating on the law of God, seeking to apply it, being careful detail. I'm picking that up after 14 chapters. You guys detected that? The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. If you inherit folly, that inheritance is going to be something like 
inheriting a piece of land that's got like an oil spill on it. And you're like, it's going to cost more to clean this thing than I could sell it for. I don't, too bad you signed it too late. That's inheriting folly or inheriting the simple inherit folly. The prudent are crowned with knowledge. They gain as a crown something that gives authority, gives power, knowledge. But why are they prudent? They're prudent because they have knowledge already. Jesus is not a Marxist. He said, they who have, more will be given. They who have not, even what they have will be taken away. It's like to each according to their ability, not from them. Now, in ourselves, we obviously can't be wise. That's a gift from above. We talked about that. But when he gives it, he gives it more. When he gives spiritual life, he gives it abundantly. When he gives the first portion, it's a deposit. It's a down payment. More is coming. The simple inherit folly, and the prudent are crowned with knowledge. When you apply the law of God prudently, when you're careful about the way, when you're careful about your steps, it encourages more knowledge for you to be crowned with. Doing this is hard. We're oxen, our trough is dirty. But much gain comes by the grain, right? Comes from the work of an ox. Verses 18 to 24, 19 to 24. And 18 sort of serves as a bridge there as well, because we're contrasting consequences with actions. So 18, the simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. 19, the evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor's sins, but he who has mercy on the poor happy is he. Do you not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. So now it's connecting for us this idea of getting more knowledge and also the tendency towards wealth and also the tendency towards friends. Okay, so wisdom is the good in itself. It tends to bring money. It tends to bring honor. It tends to bring relationships that are useful and positive. So these are the things we tend to trade wisdom for. We go, I'd like the relationship or I'd like the money, please. If I could have pleasure, add an extra helping of that. Right? These are the things we're typically trying to trade wisdom for. We're saying, I'm not going to take the way of God's law. I'm going to get one of these things. And so that lie we don't understand the structure of reality. We are not realizing that. That's the lie. 
the lie is I can get more pleasure, more friends, more power, more honor, more money by rejecting the law of God and pursuing something else. And the general structure of reality is the opposite. Proverbs talks a lot about money and pleasure and power and honor and relationships. It's like God thinks those things matter. I would suggest he does. Also, wisdom is more important. And wisdom makes it so you can manage all of these. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Okay. 